Hey y'all, spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. Welcome to Minnesota's Most Notorious, Where Blood Runs Cold. I'm Eric Rivenis. As I probably explained in what seems like a dozen times already, <laughs> so bear with me if you've already heard it, on the regular Most Notorious podcast, on Facebook, etc., Minnesota's Most Notorious is going to be a place for all things true crime history in the land of 10,000 lakes. It's important for me to go to the experts if possible, so if and when I'm able to set up an interview with a local author, an author who has written a book on a true crime subject about our state, I will, of course, go to them first. So there will be occasional interviews here when I'm able to arrange them. There is an untapped well of additional stories, however, that either haven't been written about, or if they have been, the author isn't able or is no longer around to share them. So I will do my best to research, write, and narrate those stories myself, as I've done in the, in the two-part Arbogast murder episode that kicked off the show. I have here for you today a real live author who has written a fascinating book about a topic that many of us know something a little about at least, and I'm excited to have her here with me now. Sharon Darby Henry, author of the book Glenn Sheen's Daughter, The Marjorie Congdon Story. This is one of those stories famous in Minnesota. It could well be the most famous murder in Minnesota history. So I'm excited and eager to share the story and again, recap it for many of my listeners. Thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thank you for having me, Eric. I know it's been 20 years or so since you wrote the book, but I appreciate you rolling with me on this. It's an incredible story. I'm so glad you're here to tell it. So what was it about the murders that motivated you to write a book about them? Could, could you talk about what got you interested in this to begin with? Well, I sort of actually fell into it because years before there had been another um, famous or infamous woman in Minnesota, who was a con artist, and she attempted some murders as well. And she also uh, defrauded Commercial State Bank in St. Paul, Minnesota, out of, I think it was $1.3 million. And while she was carrying on her scam, she was my husband's secretary. And he didn't obviously know what she was doing on the side, but eventually she was manipulating, bro he was a broker, and she was manipulating bro brokerage accounts, and she married somebody, 
Peter Tavenberger was his name. Her name was Glenda Bell, and took all of his money, manipulated his account, and finally they caught on to her, and uh, she was she went she ended up spending three years in prison. She disappeared from the FBI and the authorities for I think about nine months. They found her living in a small town in Minnesota, southern Minnesota, married to somebody else, and anyway they got her and she spent I think about three years in prison and I knew her as my husband's in the capacity of my husband's secretary and I thought this is a really good story and she she would call me all the time from work just to chat and I think don't you have anything to do and I had to do a lot of her retyping and um but she was very charming and she was like Marjorie, you wouldn't call her attractive, but she was had a very good sense of humor, was self-deprecating, as is so um, oftentimes the, the way of sociopaths. And she fooled everybody, but I got she got on my nerves a little bit because she was always calling me. And anyway, after they arrested her, I decided this would be a very good, interesting story, and I'd never written a book in my life. And I was working for Twin Cities Magazine and advertising at that time. And I told my boss I would like to take some time off to write a book. And he gave me his blessing and said, go for it. And so I read 39 How to Write a Book books. (laughs) And I joined the Loft, a literary organization here in uh, Minneapolis. And I joined a publisher's group and started getting going to groups and getting critiqued and reading my stuff. And anyway, I called it an element of truth because in Glenda's stories, every single story she lied about had an element of truth. And it turned out that the most fantastic parts usually were the truth. And so it took me, I worked on this for uh, five years, I believe, and went through all the postcards in my mailbox saying, Dear Author, Not For Us, my mailman, it became a joke in our neighborhood. And finally, somebody got me onto a screenwriter in L.A., and she told me to start sending my manuscript out to producers. Therefore, to shorten this a little bit, I did that, and after seven years, or maybe it was eight years, it became a made-for-TV movie, An Element of Truth, starring Donna Mills. Oh, what year was that? Uh, I think it was 1995. Oh, that must have been exciting. It was exciting because after all the, the effort and the rejection and my advice to other authors is just be persistent. Don't ever give up. <laughs> so I didn't, and... So we got to go out to Hollywood and watch them make the movie. And my two daughters, who were teenagers at the time, got to be in the movie. And it was pretty thrilling after all the, the effort. But anyway, that's kind of a long story. But that is what led to Marjorie because the producer who was uh, who produced An Element of Truth asked me if I knew any other woman con artists. And I said, not personally, but everyone knew about Marjorie Congdon at that time in Minnesota. And so he suggested that I write the story about Marjorie, and he wanted to make it a movie. And he had these fiction ideas of the story, and I worked on that for a year. And 
it went nowhere. It wasn't good. It was awful. And my editor said to me, why are you, would you fictionalize such a good story? And I realized that I was fictionalizing because I didn't really want to go through the process of interviewing all the victims and um, who had terrible a time with the stuff Marjorie had done to them. And then I thought, well, all I can do is ask and they can say they don't want to talk to me. But it turned out, I started knocking on doors and making phone calls that uh, the victims did want to talk and they did want their side of the story told. So that set me out on the Marjorie Congdon story and that took five years to write. Ah, great story. Before we get to the story of the murders, I'd like to ask you about some of the history. We Minnesotans are lucky because the Glensheen Mansion, where the murders took place, not only still exists, but it operates as a museum in Duluth. Can you talk about the history of the house itself? Uh, it was built by Chester Adgate Congdon, correct? Yes, yes. He, was, uh, he built the house. Chester made his money in um, iron ore, the Masabi Range up in Duluth, Minnesota. And he was also a lawyer, and he was in the legis- Republican legislature in Minnesota. I, I can't remember all of this stuff, but I think I think it was completed. The house was completed in about approximately 1916, and he and his wife Clara lived there, and they had six children. And he died soon after the house was completed, and he had put in his will that whichever child did not marry would be the one to stay in the house. And that turned out to be Elizabeth, who never married, and she's the one that remained in the house when the other children grew up and got married and moved. I'm sure you've been to the house many, many times. Could could you describe what the house looks like and what the experience would be for a visitor walking through? Oh, it's fabulous. It, it's a fabulous, if you're into mansions, it's 39 has 39 rooms. I can't go into each room separately. It would take all day. But I, they get about 200,000 visitors a year in Duluth, Minnesota, to the Glenshine Mansion. And it, it's a fabulous experience. And you can see the stairwell where the – of course, when I went, I was not as interested in the goat's hair wallpaper as I was the stairwell where the murder took place. <laughs> and they didn't for years and years and years refuse – to talk about it. They have um, guides that take you through the mansion and will give you the whole tour. But at the wish of the Congdons, who were very, still very powerful in Duluth, they did not want um, Marjorie Congdon to be the reason people go to the mansion. They, it, it was a very big embarrassment for their family. Th- things have changed, though, in, in recent years, haven't they? They caved and are a little more open about interpreting that part of the house's history. Yes, they did. And then a few years ago, they started selling my book and the other two books in their gift shop, which is a really good souvenir. And they that was very informative for the people that went through the tour as well. And yes, they've opened up. They don't, they don't bring up the subject, but they don't, if you ask them questions, they will try to answer them briefly. So who made up the Congdon family in 1977? Could you talk a bit about the players in the story and what life was like at Glensheen just before the murders took place? Well, at that time, Elizabeth lived there. They, she had a lot of help, of course. And 
she had adopted, well, in 1932, she had adopted Marjorie as a baby. And three years later, she had adopted another little girl, Jennifer, who was, I can't remember how old she was when she adopted her. But so Elizabeth lived there with her two daughters and help. And Elizabeth was revered by everyone in Duluth. She was lovely, generous, warm, um, very philanthropic, and she and she never married. And I don't know if she was lonely or not, but she wanted children, and so she. I don't know that in I don't. To me, it was kind of amazing that in that day and age that you could adopt a child when you were single. It's different now, but I'm sure it was kind of a big deal at that time. And Marjorie was a problem from day one. She was introverted. Jennifer, her her younger sister, was the pretty one, the athletic one, the social person, and got along with everybody. Everybody loved Jennifer. And Marjorie had a hard time getting along with people, and she was introverted and stuck to herself pretty much. Plus, she she had to wear big, thick glasses, which is hard for a child. And she was short and not very appealing as her sister Jennifer was. And so people just didn't warm to her. And I'm sure that was hard for her, but it was very difficult for Elizabeth, who tried to compensate by giving Marjorie everything she wanted. And she wanted everything. How old is Elizabeth Congdon in 1977? Um, I believe she was 83. So at the point where the murders took place, where was Marjorie in her life, and what was her relationship to her mother, Elizabeth? Well, her relationship to Elizabeth, first of all, was she she took advantage of Elizabeth, and the, all the Congdon family was very upset about it because she always took money from Elizabeth. She took things. There was just no end to satisfying her. And Elizabeth at that time was in a wheelchair. The night before the murders, they were they had a cottage in Brule, Wisconsin, on the river. And the night before the murders, Stephen Stephen, who was Marjorie's oldest son, decided to visit his grandmother Elizabeth at the cottage. Um and he hadn't this is kind of interesting. He had not been there for seven months. And I think he was up there with his girlfriend and he was there, and Elizabeth was delighted that he was visiting her. And he was Marjorie's oldest son, the star skater, the, I don't know, the perfect child. And he decided to leave. He said he had to leave the cottage early. And Elizabeth had had originally just thought she would stay an extra night, but she decided to go back to Duluth, which is about an hour or so from the cottage. And so they packed her up and sent her back with her wheelchair because she'd had a stroke to Duluth to the mansion. And this is the night of the murders. And Roger Caldwell, she was married to Roger at this time. They lived in, Roger and Marjorie lived in Denver, but he was the one accused of the murders. He got to Duluth on an airplane and they could never... There's so many things. It was a very botched, botched um, investigation. Find out how he actually got there without um, anyone knowing his name or anything. But 
he and Marge, he, he was the one accused of murdering her, and he did, but no one, oh, in, the, in her bed that night, you're going to have to have me go back here. <laughs> um, he bludgeoned the nurse, he snuck into the house, he waited in, the, he waited in a graveyard just adjacent to the house until dark, and then he made, and he was an alcoholic, and he was drinking, and he made his way up to the, the bottom level of the house and broke a window, wrapped his shirt around his hand, broke a window with a rock, shattering glass through, the, through this billiards room about 16 feet, and put his arm through the window and opened the latch to let himself in. That was the story. And he had only been in the entryway of the mansion one time before, so he didn't know his way around, but obviously Marjorie or somebody told him how to get to the top of the stairs where Elizabeth would be sleeping. Supposedly, he was going to rob her. And on his way up the stairs, um, the nurse, Velma Piedela, who had just worked that night. She was replacing somebody else as the night nurse that evening. She had actually retired and her husband didn't want her to go back to work. He wanted her to stay retired, but she really loved Elizabeth because she'd been her head nurse for years and said, I'll just do it this one time. And she heard somebody, heard Roger on the stairs and came out with her flashlight and startled him. And he ended up beating her to death with a candlestick, which was on a shelf on the staircase. I think one thing that keeps this story so alive is that nobody, nobody, not the jury, and I, I spent quite a bit of time talking with the foreman of the jury, or the, read the transcriber, rather, believed that Roger acted alone. He just, he was not capable to do all this by himself. And so a lot of the, speculation was that somebody let him in the house and had a key and let him in and showed him where the room was. And I don't believe that he acted alone. I don't think anyone ever believed that he acted alone. And when the court trial came, Ron Meshbesher, who was really fabulous attorney, I said, if I ever murdered anyone, you're my man, (laughs) proved that Roger's arm would not have fit through that window to reach the latch, for one thing. And another thing, that in Velma's hands, when they found her body, there were black hairs. Roger did, she had blonde hair. Roger had gray hair. But no, he did not have black hair. And so how did black hairs get in her hand? However, Meshbesher was brilliant, and I'm skipping ahead here, too, because I haven't gone through Roger's trial yet. Do you want to stop me? Oh, well... Typically, what I do is just let my guests talk, and if we skip something that seems important, I'll ask more questions or fill in the details on my own as best I can. Okay, I'm sorry. I just don't, I'm getting all ahead of myself. No, it's okay. We're doing fine. I would like listeners to understand the family situation a bit more fully, if you don't mind. So, Stephen, her oldest son, was from a prior marriage, correct? He was. He was. All of, her, all of her children, her six ch- seven children, were fathered by Dick Leroy, who she was married to for 20 years. And she actually met 
Dick Leroy when she was being diagnosed down in Missouri, was it Managers, I believe, and was diagnosed on a lot of pressure. Elizabeth finally sent her down there to uh, get an evaluation because on top of everything else, which is kind of her main deal, is that she set fires. And she started setting fires early on as a child. And she was diagnosed as a sociopath down there, but when she was down there, she met Dick Leroy, who, I don't know if he was, I think he was a salesman at that time, insurance salesman, and convinced him that she was just doing down there to please her mother, but didn't really say what her real reason was for being there. But anyway, she charmed Dick Leroy, and they ended up getting married in the Glensheen Mansion. So she had a large family. She and Dick Leroy had gotten divorced, and then she married Roger Coldwell. Had Roger Coldwell met his mother-in-law, Elizabeth, before he'd, he'd snuck into the house that night? He'd met her, I believe, one time before when Marjorie talked him into going to Elizabeth and telling her she needed more money from a trust fund. And she, he made Elizabeth very nervous, and he was denied. They did not give her the money, give him the money. And I believe that's the only time he'd met her. So money is the motivating factor in all of this. Money is, was everything in this deal. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. So can you explain this relationship between Elizabeth and Marjorie just before the murder? Elizabeth was, was growing more and more hesitant about giving Marjorie money. Is that right? She was more hesitant, and especially with the urgings of the, there were a lot of um, Elizabeth's brothers who I don't think most of them lived in the state, but said, no more, no more, you cannot give her any more. And Marjorie always talked her into it, but by now I think she was pretty much done. And Dick Leroy, when he divorced her, was she buy property, she buy um, houses, she buy everything she could find, and when she couldn't pay the bills, Dick Leroy had to get money from Elizabeth to cover them, and it was re- very difficult for him to ask, And but she couldn't be controlled. Marjorie could not be controlled, so they finally just said no more, and I guess that might be when she got really desperate later on with Roger because it was the same thing was happening. She kept spending and buying and buying, and I guess that's how they planned to get the money. I don't know if they I don't know for sure if he planned to murder her or just rob her. I don't know if anyone knows. That's why it keeps the story alive. Right. And and Marjorie of course had a convenient alibi. That's true. Mhm. So you said that Roger beat to death the nurse with a candlestick on the staircase. Was that before or after he murdered Elizabeth? Well, um before because she startled him as he was going up the stairs. And then he knew that he, and she'd seen him. And then he had to get up to Elizabeth's bedroom. And that's when he put the pillow over her face and smothered her. So what what happens next? Who, Who discovers the body and how do the police proceed with the investigation? The next morning, this is in the middle of the night, the next morning, the, I, don't, I think it was the day nurse, Mildred, Mildred Garview, came and found thought it was, was surprised to find the door unlocked. And she went in and saw, looked up and saw Velma, the night nurse, 
um, laying on the, the landing in the stairwell, and her first reaction was Velma was taking a nap. Well, then she went up to look at her, and she was covered covered with blood and beaten, and she panicked and then ran up to Elizabeth's bedroom and found Elizabeth smothered to death. So then she came downstairs, and the cook was in the kitchen. It's kind of amazing that a lot of this people were around and didn't hear all this, but um, and told her, and they called the police right then. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Once the police arrive, what evidence do they find at the scene of the crime besides the broken window and the hair? There was a nylon stocking wrapped around Vel- one of Velma's hands, and I think it's unclear why how that got there. If Roger had planned, if he'd worn one on his head, or you know, I doubt that. Or if he had planned to tie her up, or I think that that was unclear of why that was there. But the the hairs were, you know, if they'd had DNA, then it would have been solved. But the crime scene was all botched up. People drove on it and there were dogs and it was just not sealed off the way they would do now. But they found blood in the sink in the bathroom upstairs and the um, with fingerprints. And one of the fingerprints turned out to be, was a nurse? And one of them turned out to be Gary Waller, the cop. So most of the crimes that I've covered on Most Notorious and plan on covering on this show go back far longer than this one. Um, right. Why can't these hairs or blood samples be tested for DNA now? Well, interestingly, John DeSanto, who was the prosecutor for Roger Caldwell's trial, which I skipped over, years ago he wrote a book, and along with Gary Waller, and admitted that he had taken the boxes of evidence and kept them in his basement. Although, when asked by uh, me and by another author and by Rita Prima, who worked for the Bureau of Criminal Apprehension at the time and was on the case, was told that there was no evidence. So I believe that there was evidence that could have been investigated and looked in, forensically looked into and with DNA and everything they have now, but it was not. Okay, so getting back to the police and their suspicions, who are their initial suspects as they cast their net? Or are Marjorie and Roger immediately at the forefront because of Marjorie's financial motive? Well, it's obvious that she planned it. That was obvious. 
But I know that her son Stephen had been in the, the scope in the early investigation and they quickly dropped his name. But when I was researching and I done a lot of biographies on the kids and everybody I could find, but Stephen had black hair and he had long arms and he was up there that night, the night before. But anyway, he, he was in the original net, as you called it, and it was dropped right away. So what you've been saying is that you believe that the gray hair was Roger's and the black hair could well have been Stevens, and that fits with your theory that Roger didn't do this alone. Well, this is I'm not a you know, a lawyer or a, it's just my speculation. Just speculation. So how do they focus on Roger and how do they proceed in building a case against him? Well, Roger, when he uh, came back for Elizabeth's funeral, he was bruised and his hand was swollen. And the police thought that was odd. And also, when he, during the murder, this was always kind of confusing, but he stole jewelry from Elizabeth, a ring and some other jewelry from her bedroom. And he also, and she had a wicker basket in there. And he also took a a Byzantine coin that had been on her dresser. He put all this stuff in a bas- this wicker basket and fled. Um, oh, he found Velma Piedla's car keys in her purse. That was, to me, very odd as well. How would you know where the nurse's car keys were or where her purse was? Or how, why would you go to murder somebody and not have a getaway plan? He, he took a cab, sits in a graveyard until he decides to go in and do the deed, and he doesn't have a plan of how to get out of there. And I just thought that doesn't make any sense to any thinking person. But he took her car with his stuff that he'd stolen from the bedroom and went to the airport and left the car in the airport parking lot and with his wicker basket goes into the airport buys a garment bag to stuff the wicker basket into and they were they remembered him at the the people that sold him the garment bag and then supposedly flew back to Denver but when they came back for the funeral Marjorie and Roger he comes back with a wicker basket with the stuff in it and they were staying at a holiday inn at the Bloomington in Bloomington Minnesota and the police found this evidence there when they they became suspicious of him because of his bruising and everything. So why he would bring all that stuff back with him is there's still a lot of mystery to this. So you talk a little about Ron Meshbesher's brilliant defense of Roger Caldwell. How does he explain the fact that this was found in their hotel room? Well, one of the things um, we skipped over Roger's trial because he had uh, his murder trial was first. I think that lasted, I think, about six weeks. And in his trial, uh, John DeSanto, the one that had the evidence in his basement later on, um, said that there was a that Roger Caldwell's thumbprint was found on an envelope where he had 
he mailed the night of the murders that Byzantine coin in an envelope to the hotel that he was staying at in Denver. And that was his proof that Roger had been in the house with a coin and mailed it back to Denver. And um, during the trial, that was the proof that said that proved that Roger was guilty. Well, when Marjorie's trial came up um, later for the conspiracy part, Ron Meshbesher had a, a forensic expert come in and prove that that was not Roger's thumbprint on the envelope. So if that was not Roger's thumbprint on the envelope, which put Roger away, that meant that Roger either had to have a new trial or if if he wasn't guilty of murdering her, murdering Elizabeth, then Marjorie wasn't guilty for conspiring. So they had to go decide if Roger wanted, if they wanted to go through the risk of um, putting Roger through a new trial or not. They decided to give him a plea bargain. He was sentenced to, uh, I think, maybe 20 years. And he decided to give if he gave a confession and confessed to murdering Elizabeth and Velma Piedela, he would uh, be let go, released, which is what happened. Yeah, so was Meshbesher the defense attorney for Roger in his first trial? No, he was not. That was um, Thompson. So he's tried and convicted, and the prosecution's probably riding pretty high on that. <laughs> Exactly. The next year, they decide to go after Marjorie Congdon. And this is when Meshbesher comes into the picture. And a lot of the things that had led to Roger's conviction in his trial, when they're brought up in the conspiracy trial against Marjorie, the defense proves them to be false. Yes, and they just, DeSanto just couldn't hold a candle to Meshbesher. Um, I think I put in my book that Ron Meshbesher was, it was an Oscar winning performance. <laughs> he was, uh, down home and he was humorous and, and he had that, he disproved that fingerprint thing, which is what Roger's trial hinged on. And Marjorie was charming the jurors. It was amazing. She was, as I said about sociopaths, very, charming and witty, and she wanted to testify, but uh, Meshbesher knew better than to let her do that, and so she did not testify. But he created the reasonable doubt, and she was let off. So this leads to a lot of doubt. Was that pretty much the prosecution's strategy, to try and get Marjorie on a rehash of, of Roger's trial? Yes. Yeah, you're right. And so during the trial, um, she had a best friend, Helen Hagen. This is to go on to her next phase of life. Oh, first of all, Roger was released, never admitted to conspiring with Marjorie, and he went back to Trobe, Pennsylvania, where he had grown up, and he killed himself. He slit his wrist with steak knives, and he wrote a note that said, I did not kill those girls. And he said, I'd never harmed anyone in my life. And turns out that he had a girlfriend who, at that time, who was in the hospital because he beat her up so badly. 
So that was the end of the Roger Caldwell part. And so during the trial, Helen and Wally Hagen had been very close friends with Marjorie and her children because they, all their children ice skated together. And Helen and Wally uh, drove a, a long ways every day to attend the trial in Hastings, Minnesota, supporting Marjorie. And they were there for that celebration after Marjorie was acquitted. And not long after, Helen was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And she was in a nursing home. And Marjorie would go to visit her. And it turned out that at that time, Marjorie and Wally were having an affair. And one night, uh, Nancy Hagen, Wally and Helen's grown daughter, gets a call that her mother had died. And the doctors thought she would not, she wasn't at that stage where she would have died of Alzheimer's. And the last person to see her before she died was Marjorie in her room feeding her something. And was there an autopsy done to determine the cause of death? There was not an autopsy done, which they regretted afterwards, but no. And Marjorie eventually married Wally. Not that long after, but it's in the book. (laughs) And she, in the meantime, was still committing arson. They built a, or bought a house in Mound, Minnesota, and she burnt it down. And Ray DePrima, who was the Bureau of Criminal Apprehension person on the case, ended up getting her convicted, and she spent, I think, a year and a half in the Women's Shakopee Prison here in Minnesota for that fire. And, and she was trying she, to collect the insurance money. Was that the scam? Yes. And when she got out, she and Wally took a Airstream trailer, you can't make this stuff up, to Ajo, Arizona, where they set up housekeeping. And a few years later, um, and when Wally, she told everybody that he had cancer, and he was very lethargic, and she wheeled him around in a wheelchair, and he was a lot older than her. And they're going on about their life, and she was eventually, uh, she was still setting fires, and I have a map in my book as to all the fires that they figured out she started in little town of Ajo, Arizona, while she lived there. And she's put kerosene rags in her neighbor's house, a man who was in the house and lived there by himself at nighttime. And he caught her lighting a match to the kerosene rags, and she ran away, and they got her and convicted her for... Um, arson, and she went to jail for, this is also in the book, months, and was sentenced to 15 years, but when she got the sentence, when she got the sentencing, she convinced the judge that she needed to go home and take care of her ailing husband, please, please, before I go off to prison because he won't be able to do anything without me. And the judge granted her a 24-hour reprieve. So Marjorie was escorted home. She was allowed 24 hours. The police were going to drive by and kind of monitor and check on her. And somebody drove by the house on a bike and smelled gas coming out of the house. And 
yelled, is everything okay in there? And she said, oh, it's fine. My pilot light went out on my stove. And he drove away. And later on, she called and said that Wally had died. And what she had done, and they proved all this, was she had a a garden hose out on the side of her house. And she had strung the garden hose into her kitchen where she had a huge gas stove. And she connected the gas, the hose, to the gas line. And then she, she drugged Wally, who was in bed, and she took the hose and into the bedroom. She it was a small house. Taped it with duct tape to his nose. Turned on the gas and waited. And when he was gone, she took the hose back into the kitchen, unscrewed it from the gas line, took it back out to the hose holder that she had on the side of her house, put everything back and um, called to say that Wally had died. How did she explain herself? Did she deny this? And what was her motive in killing her third husband, Wally? Well, I think that he knew too much. Um, People knew that they would drive around. He knew she was setting these fires. And he knew too much. I think he knew a lot about her past. And he was just like the other. It was very interesting. All these men were, um, none of them ever implicated her. They stuck up for her right until the very end, every one of them, which is kind of amazing for the awful things that they went through. But his children, his grown children, believed that he knew too much and she had to kill him. And so she'd written a a note, and I don't remember if she had him help or not. It's in the book. Um, a double suicide note and say they want to, they are going to go together. He's ill. And he won't be able to live without her her because she'll be in prison. And they wanted to be buried together. And so she had all of this written out. And then I guess she changed her mind. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing that she thought silencing him would help her when the circumstances of his death were far more incriminating. I know. It's not, it's not explainable. But the thing about um, she's gotten away with, well, she is connected to, I believe, five murders. Velma Piedela, her mother, Elizabeth, Wally, Helen, which they didn't prove, and then another man in the 1990s who she befriended, and I think his name was Roger Samus, who she befriended him and I think assisted care living or something, and he got him to sign over his power of attorney to her, and he all of a sudden died suddenly and she said that she was the power of attorney and decided to have him cremated, which she did right away. So so there was no evidence of how he actually died. And she told the authorities that he didn't have a, um, any relatives. Well, he did, he had a sister who didn't know anything about Marjorie, didn't know that, or she'd said he had a heart condition. His sister didn't know that. And, but the evidence was gone because she cremated him. But after she made a mistake in that she wrote herself checks from him after he had been cremated. 
And so they got her on fraud and forgery for that. And I think she spent some time in prison after that. Did she face murder charges while serving time for arson? She ended up getting, she spent time in prison for the arson, but she was not convicted of the murder because the evidence didn't prove it. She put everything away, but apparently gas dissipates, and so there wasn't really the evidence that she had done what she did. And the toxicology report couldn't prove it, and so she got off. Would you mind giving us a chronological account of when these things happened? Okay, let's see. In 1991, that's when she uh, tried to light her neighbor's house on fire. And in 1992, she was convicted of attempted arson and for that fire and sentenced to 15 years in prison. In 1992, October... Wally dies of a drug overdose. Marjorie's arrested for his murder, but the charge is later dropped. So the drug overdose would be the gas? I guess that's what the, yep. Okay. Well, I don't know if it was the gas or the drugs that she gave him Okay. to knock him out before she did the gas. Sure, right. And in January 2004, she was released early from prison. I can give you a little bit more. Want more? Oh, yeah, that would be great. In March, so that was 2004. In 2007, Roger Samus, who I just told you about, a gentleman friend of Marjorie, dies. She has his body cremated before a cause of death can be determined. She's charged with fraud and forgery. Wow, 2007. I, I didn't realize that these things had happened so recently. Yes. So she's released, <laughs> and no one is, is watching her, of course, and she's allowed to maneuver her way into this Roger Samus's life, even after everything she's already done. It's inc- Well, and then in 2009, she pleads guilty to the charges and is sentenced to three years of intensive probation. And then in 2010, she asks the court to end her probation, which prevents her from moving into an assisted living facility, and the judge denied her request. And in 2016, she bought a three-bedroom, two-bedroom home in Tucson. As far as I know, she still lives there. She's about 85 now. So I guess we're just waiting <laughs> for more news, and then you'll be able to release another edition of your book, I suppose. <laughs> yes, <laughs> another update. <laughs> How many new editions have you released? <laughs> um, I believe... 11. Um, it sold 50,000 copies and it's still going. <laughs> well, congratulations on the sales. So where can people learn more about you and your book? Well, I don't know how much is out there on me anymore. It's been so long. Um, but my book is on Amazon or you can get it through cable publishing. And this is interesting. I don't know. Do you live in Minnesota, Eric? Yes, I do. Have you had a chance to see the play? lynching at the St. Paul Historic Theater. Yeah, I heard about it. Is, is that through the History Theater? Yeah, it's based on my book. You won't believe this, but they, they, um, it's a musical, it's a musical comedy. It's a dark musical comedy. It's, they do in, and I can say this because I didn't write it, so I can say it. They did an incredible job of this play. What happened though, the Congdens were, I've always, I've 
sold my book for many years in the mansion, and the Congdons are very upset about the play, and they pulled my book from the gift shop. Oh, no. So that was kind of disappointing because that was really a nice deal for me to have it there, and the tourists really liked it too, but that's what happened. They're so upset about the play, but you'd really like the play. It's amazing. It's called, The play is called Glen Sheen. Well, it sounds marvelous. Um, you know, I've got another question uh, related to something you talked about earlier. This box of evidence you mentioned, that box of evidence that DeSanto had for years in his basement. Do we know what happened to that? Is that still there? I don't know. I I, I would think he would have destroyed it, but I don't know. But I question the ethics of that. <laughs> Can I just read it to you? Oh, yeah, from your book? Sure. Several years ago, John DeSanto told Ray DePrima, an agent of the Bureau of Criminal Apprehension, as well as Joe Kimball, a reporter for the Star Tribune, who wrote Secrets of the Congdon Mansion, that all evidence for that case had been lost or destroyed. In 2003, DeSanto acknowledged that he had boxed up the murder evidence, which included hair samples from the crime scene, saliva samples, and blood-stained clothing, and stored it in his basement. With the knowledge that we have of the case and the availability of new DNA technology, we know that hair samples may be crucial in forensic homicide investigations. And that's all I have on it. Well, I know that this is a book that you wrote a long time ago, but I really wanted to cover it on the podcast. So I appreciate you dusting off the cobwebs and going over the meat and potatoes of it anyway. (laughs) Well, I appreciate your patience with me. I'm sure I was out of order, but... No, no, not at all. Thank you again. Well, thank you, Eric. On a final note, I did reach out to John DeSanto, the man whom Ms. Hendry refers to in this episode. He has also written a book on the subject called Will to Murder. When I contacted his publisher via email, I got a quick response back saying, Hi, Eric. Thank you for your interest. Unfortunately, the authors of Will to Murder are not actively publicizing their work at this time. Again, this has been Sharon Darby Henry, author of the book Glenn Sheen's Daughter, The Marjorie Congdon Story. This has been another episode of Minnesota's Most Notorious, Where Blood Runs Cold. I'm Eric Rivenis. I'll see you soon. <laughs>